All right, we are back. Welcome um, to another episode of the Rigged Podcast. Um, today we have um, a special guest, Rick Holmes. Uh, Rick, could you would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Rick Holmes. I uh, worked for many years, like thirty something years, for the um, Middlesex News and the Metro West Daily News. Um, uh, about 20 years of that, I was the editorial page editor. Uh, Metro West Daily News is located in Framingham and covers Framingham news extensively, or used to at least. And uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about Yuri Stamps, which was a, a story that was covered extensively in, in our newspaper, but not noticed very much at the time by folks outside of Framingham. So uh, I was the editorial page editor at the time and I wrote about uh, this case a lot. Uh, I retired in 2017 and got involved again with, uh, with the Uri Stamps case when people started organizing around it and trying to, to, to bring it to the public attention. So we'll talk okay, more so about how that worked out. But I, I now live in, in Vermont. I'm not totally up to date on everything going on in Massachusetts, but I still am very interested in this case. Right, so um, what could you, so for those who don't know, uh, could you take us through and give us the sky high view first of, of what happened to Yuri Stamps? Let's, let's okay. start Yuri Stamps uh, lived in Framingham. He was 68, a grandfather of about 16 grandchildren, uh, lived on the south side of Framingham. Uh, on the January 6th, around midnight in 2011, uh, a SWAT team from the Framingham Police Department uh, descended on his house uh, with a search warrant. Uh, officers were acting on a, a tip from an informant that there might be drugs in the house um, in the possession of Yuri Stamp's stepson. Um, I'm trying to figure out how, how little to say at this point, but, but basically a, uh, a, the SWAT team invaded the house, uh, even though the suspect, the, the stepson, was already in custody. And even though Yuri's wife met them at the, uh, on the sidewalk, they brought all their equipment. They uh, used battering rams to knock in two doors. They used flashbang grenades to stun anybody that was there. Um, and they, uh, they went, went in ready to do their worst. Um, Yuri Stamps uh, was upstairs in his bedroom in his pajamas watching the Celtics game on TV. Uh, the cops came bursting into his apartment, screaming at him, yelling, yelling to get down on the floor. He, uh, he, he did exactly what the officers demanded. Uh, one officer was standing over him with a, uh, with a, a, a long gun uh, pointed at his head. Uh, Yuri Stamps was lying on his stomach and something happened and the gun went off. Basically what happened was the, 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 the cop there, uh, Officer Paul Duncan, uh, pulled the trigger and uh, shot Yuri Stamps in the head and he died immediately. And he was complying with everything. And they broke he was into complying with everything. He was okay. not a suspect in any case. And in the briefing before the SWAT team raid, uh, officers were informed that there'll be a, there there may well be an elderly gentleman at that house that uh, is not a suspect. 
So they they went in and killed it, just killed a elderly man for yeah, no reason. Basically, for no reason. They 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 went in looking for drugs. There, but the guy was already in custody that they were looking for. Correct. Right. They didn't find any drugs. They were they were serving a routine search warrant uh, in the middle of the night with the maximum militarized force that the uh, that a local police department in in Massachusetts can muster. Um, I think they thought of it more as a training exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly not the kind of um, you know SWAT teams are designed for active shooter situations or, or, or dire emergencies, hostage right. situations and so on. Um, we don't have those situations come up in Framingham. So they, they use this for their training opportunity. Um, the officer involved, Paul Duncan, there was an investigation by the uh, Middlesex uh, district attorney's office that cleared the officer. He said he kind of tripped and and, and stumbled and the gun went off. Um, the, the officer to, to cut to the chase here, Paul Duncan, as far as I know, is still working for the Framingham Police Department. So this was, I mean, they investigated it obviously, and this is before Brianna Taylor obviously, and, and all these, and uh, all the, you know, shootings and uh, police killing, execution style killings that we've heard about, but it's similar to what happened to Breonna Taylor in that they they went in and they threw a flashbang and you know like they acted recklessly um also it was on a no-knock warrant yeah and that's a huge part of it right right because they I mean they can just invade your home and like come after you um with literally guns blazing um and that I mean obviously they're trying to protect themselves but at the same time that opens the door for something like this to happen uh and it did and they put the um their desire to kind of use this as a training exercise as you were saying and i mean would you say it's like they were using it for justification almost of of uh all this military militarized equipment and just to because they don't use it do you think that that could have had something to do with it that they so seldom use this kind of stuff that when they have the opportunity they go full bore i think it's true that if you if you get all this stuff if you get a registered swat team in your jurisdiction you do have to use it you do have to have training exercises there's 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 regulations around it if you're going to accept this military equipment then you have to have such a level of training and and supervision um i also think that the SWAT teams are part of that training. A large part of that training is to is is to uh, creates very high dangerous, highly dangerous situations. Okay, right. the way that you know the SWAT team uh, their 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 techniques rely on on overwhelming force. They rely on surprise. That's why you have flashbang grenades and so on because you want to confuse. The, the targets of your of your raid. Um, they do a lot of yelling, a lot of threatening, a lot of four letter words to force people onto the floor to get their compliance. Uh, there's a lot of adrenaline um, going around in, in a situation like that. And the defenders of Officer Duncan might well point to that and say, well, you know, he, he thought his life might be in danger because that's 
that's sort of the the intention that they that they bring to these kind of kinetic operations. If right. they had come in the daytime, and I, I guarantee you, if uh, if this had been in a nicer house on another side of town, they would have come to the day in the daytime with a number of officers. They would have knocked on the door. They would have said, "We have a search warrant. May we please come in?" And we wouldn't be talking about it all these years later. Right. Right. It would have just been another routine, you know, drug bust or search that that didn't come up with anything. And instead, they literally went in with guns blazing. And to me, it feels like a military operation. And that is truly terrifying as a citizen of, the, of this country that they come that the police um, feel the need to act like a military and treat uh citizens like they are an occupying military where they go in and they attack you and that to me is crazy yeah and they what they do is they turn a neighborhood into a battlefield right and they bring a military mentality which is you know be 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 fully armed and heavily armed and take control mm -hmm. and um that that kind of thing leads can can lead to problems as we've seen yeah, when you have fully loaded weapons, when you have that mentality expecting something to happen, something will happen. It it you almost force the issue. And Rick, um, you, and you know that they love to use their their toys. You know <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, Rick, your um to your knowledge, the the um the the police officer who who pulled the trigger, uh, he's still employed. Uh, last I heard, I'm a I haven't haven't checked back within the okay. But he didn't. There was year. no, the, the, there was no um, uh, consequence to him in terms of losing his job, for example. Uh, he did not lose his job. I believe he was removed from the SWAT team, and okay. uh, some months later, the SWAT team was disbanded. So and, uh, that may have been a um, a thoughtful and logical response to the right. death of Yuri Stamps. They didn't. They didn't put it in those terms. What they said at the time was that the uh, the the commander of their SWAT team, who was leaving the force for another job, um, would have lowered their their uh, certification requirements. I see. So they and, didn't, and what, so what they use as an excuse to make it go away. But I think a lot of people in Framingham, too quietly, but were saying, uh, let's 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 shut this down. And what other consequences did Framingham face? um because I, I know there was a civil case but there uh, there was a civil case they ended up paying the family in 3.75 million dollars something like that uh how much of that went to the family how much went to lawyers i believe it was covered by the town's insurance policy um so that the consequences weren't very uh major right and i i, I i'm a um a civil attorney so i sort of already know the answer, but I think um, uh, a, a person listening might be surprised to know, you know, they hear 3 million and they think um, that that happened right away and and with no lift, uh, heavy lifting on the part of, of the Stamps family. No, it took years. How Do you know how, how long the lawsuit uh, took? I'd have to look it up. Um, I would say uh, maybe five years at least. All right. And including an appeal uh, to the First Circuit. Yes. Um, and and uh, I was struck uh, a little bit, not to get too sort of in the weeds from a legal standpoint, 
But one of the things we've touched on in this podcast, um, but we haven't focused on it in depth, hopefully we'll, we'll cover that soon, but is qualified immunity. Right. And what, what I find fascinating about this case, as well as some of the other cases that have been in the news recently, and I'm thinking of the the, the, the woman uh, uh, in somewhere in the Midwest who uh, shot somebody uh, thinking she had grabbed her taser, um, but had oh, uh, grabbed yeah. her gun. Yeah. And, uh, and then also, um, uh, a what was her name, uh, Amber Geiger or whatever, the, the one in, in Texas who went into the, apparently the wrong apartment. She thought she was in her apartment right. and killed the resident who she thought was an, an intruder. And it's interesting that when it's a clear mistake, and I, I'm not going to define what I mean by mistake, but when it's a clear mistake, somehow the legal system rallies uh, around what I think is, is, is recognizing what the just outcome should be. Um, but when it's an actually intentional act, so if, if Duncan had just said, I don't like what Stamps is saying to me, maybe he swore at me, I, you know, and I shoot him, the legal system all of a sudden would get confused and qualified immunity would immediately creep in and, and start uh, 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 rearing its, its ugly head. Uh, have, is that something you've thought about at all? I mean, really, Duncan was, or the town of Framingham was found liable because uh, to get into the minutia, Duncan had put his finger inside the trigger as opposed to, and pointed, kept the gun pointed at somebody who was not um, uh, worthy of uh, having a gun pointed at him. With the safety when, off. With the safety off. When, if he had done any, uh, 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 not done any one of those three things, or preferably none of those three things, uh, the, the accident would have happened, wouldn't have happened, but because he was in such gross violation of sort of basic protocols, that was found to not merit protection. Uh, but if you had done it intentionally, I'm not so sure we would have the same outcome. Is that something you've at all thought about? Or? I'm not sure how that that uh, distinction would be made. And it's been a while since I read that First Circuit opinion, but it, it was a, it, important, I think, that they ruled on you know, that basically the town and the insurance company were dragging their, their feet for years on this thing. And it, and it took an appeal to the, to the first circuit to hear, to, to, to basically figure out whether this was a reasonable shooting or not. Mm -hmm. And the first circuit said um, that he was negligent or that a reasonable person could determine that he violated the training and the proper procedures. Uh, in the way this shooting was conducted. The Tinsley case, which we'll get into later, also goes to qualified immunity. And that right. was a very important SJC decision, I think. It, and yeah. It, I'm sorry. It just, I, like, as a town, you'd think you would want to bend over backwards for someone who got shot for no reason by your employees. Like, to, to have to drag this out with essentially a grandpa getting killed watching the Celtics game by the cops for no reason. You know, at, at the time, uh, one of the things that angered me most was the inaction on the part of the town officials. Right. Um, they were apparently told by their lawyers not to say anything because then it could hurt them in a court case and cost the town money down, down the line, you know. Uh, God forbid. God, yeah, God, God forbid, and they should have to pay out any money to this family that they destroyed. Right. Um, but because they were listening to this advice, they wouldn't say anything. 
they wouldn't apologize. They didn't go down there and visit with the family. Say how could they didn't say offer help? I mean, they, their their house was was damaged seriously. You know, I mean, the house had two doors: a front door and a back door, and they destroyed both of them because I guess they had two battering rams and they had to use them both to you know show that they were worthy investments. But right. um, that that inaction really bothered me at at the time from the town. I have heard conflicting reports. I've had uh, town officials tell me that they would have settled a lot sooner, but the insurance company was dragging its feet. Uh, I can't say who's to blame for sure, um, but I and and there have been some efforts since we started bringing this up back in 2020. Uh, there have been efforts to make up for 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 that behavior by starting a scholarship for in the name of URI Stamps, by having a URI Stamps Day, by passing a, approving a, a resolution regretting his death. Uh, so they've, they've done some kind of lip service things to, uh, to acknowledge that a wrong was done. Um, they just haven't done anything difficult. Right, that's like a layup that should have been done 10 years ago. Right. It, and um, it just it, it kind of goes to show what's really going on in, the, in our country. And um, unless people like bring huge action to it, protests, etc., literally nothing will be done. Nothing, they will not do anything unless people get pissed off and force them to do it, because all they want to do is to not get sued and to hush the whole thing up. Right. That's that's what it, that's the pattern that I have seen. And, and part of that pattern, I should say, in, is especially in small towns, but big cities too, is that uh, few institutions have the political power of the police union. Right. The police department, nobody wants to, to be soft on crime. Nobody wants to buck the, the police officers are, are town employees and they have a lot of relatives and they make sure they vote. And they always want a, a bigger budget and and you know less uh, less discipline and softer contracts and 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 so on. And then often as not, they get their way more often than not. Right, because anyone who stands up has said that they are soft on crime and they attack them. So it's I mean this is when when we call this podcast rigged. This is what we're talking about: a police union basically acting like the mob and um, forcing people to accept murders, forcing people to accept, you know, all these kind of crazy things that happen, assaults that we'll get into later, and all these things without accountability, all in the name of keeping us safe. Because if we don't accept these things, then, you know, the terrorists will win or whatever they want to say. Violent criminals will be running wild in the streets if we, you know, hold a guy accountable for murdering a grandpa. And uh, if we hold a guy, if we hold what five officers accountable for dragging someone out of their car and savagely beating them, like these are these are things that have both happened in Framingham. And um, like you said, the police union has way too much power in our state in general, but in Framingham in particular. I'd say that's true. Yeah, there's and, and I think the the point of uh, thus far of our podcast has really been to look at the war on drugs in particular and the hysteria that is attendant to that and i think this case is really uh boils down a lot of the the lunacy of the the war on drugs into one singular event um so you have a, a midnight 
raid, which no one has explained why it has to be done at midnight, um, using a, a SWAT team with somebody carrying a long gun um, and the use of flashbang grenades. Um, and, and, and for, you know, what offense? It was a drug offense. Yeah, right, so we're not going a, after a drug offense. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, they call it a confidential informant. You know, it basically it's it's one person gets gets caught and gets convinced to tell a story about another person, and that story about the second person is used as justification for a search warrant. Uh, happens every day in every city in this country. Right, and I, uh, in, and I in this case, it was a you know, I I blame the judge. The judge could have looked at this and said, "All they are alleging is maybe that maybe that this young man is in possession of drugs in his uh, in in his home." Um, you know, I don't see how that justifies a no-knock warrant, but uh, Judge uh, Stafford uh, signed off on it, and right. they knew exactly what they were going to do, and they knew that it was going to be a midnight raid, and this is this is what they do. Right. And, and we're going to be covering a little bit more in, uh, later on in, in, in another episode, Framingham and the narcotics um, police. But did, have you in any way followed um, sort of in the chronology where this case might fit all the other things that have been going on? I mean, there have been multiple lawsuits, criminal prosecutions against other Framingham narcotics officers. And so this thing um, kind of just happened in the middle of it, but it, it no, no one ever seemed to try to connect it back to all the things that happened um, or were happening at the time with the Framingham narcotics officers. Is that something that you uh, sort of looked at, that angle? I have seen some of that, you know, I, and I saw uh, <clears throat> a story about a case within the last couple of years where some, some uh, uh Framingham narcotics officers were forced their way into a home early in the early in the morning without a warrant. And it was, you know, suspicion of marijuana and, um, you know, pushed, pushed around a, a mother getting her kids, try, trying to get their kids ready for school and, and so on. I saw some video of it and it was, it was uh, frankly ridiculous. And it's ridiculous that, uh, that that there's a team of officers whose job it is to to go around policing personal marijuana use in a state that has legalized personal marijuana use. So, right. but I I think uh, you know we created these police departments, we created these officers, and we made and we said your job is to go after drugs, and that's what they'll do, and that's what they're still doing. It's job justification. And they need to do that to show that their job is worth keeping. And to your point, we, this is on us, the people. We created this war on drugs. Like, I mean, Nixon created it really, but it, it is on, uh, we signed off on it and said, yes, this is, the, this is a good way to get people to stop using drugs, to attack them with cops that and 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 deprive them of freedom in a country where we say we love freedom you know we love freedom unless you do something that we look down our nose on and then freedom sucks and you're going to jail forever um it just it's such a strange dichotomy 
that um, you know has always really existed in our country where we don't we we say we're the land of the free but it's never been the land of the free for everyone it's the land of the free for people who you know do what is you know considered acceptable or who are born with certain you know skin pigmentation or whatever it is then you're free but if if you fall out of you know this kind of isolated freedom box then you're totally screwed and you're going to get you know the worst treatment possible. It, it, it is such a strange, strange dichotomy that we've always had. And it's a big business. It's a huge yes, business. true. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I <clears throat> excuse me, one of the, one of the ways that the, the power of the police unions and the police as a political force is seen is that is, is in this response that, you know, that if you identify a, uh, a social problem, um, the police are there to volunteer to do something about it. And they do that because that gets a bigger budget and more hires and more overtime. So that's why when we had police shootings, suddenly the idea was let's, let's put a cop in every school. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's the only answer. You know, let, to, let's to increase the problem budget. of disturbed kids. Yeah, um, in our uh, homelessness, we have the the police dealing with the homeless rather than and, and with mental illness and so on. So, to the extent that we have piled more responsibilities on the police, they've always said, "Yeah, let us do it," uh, yep. because we it, can it increases that. their power and it increases their budgets. Yep, and increases their kind of foothold on society, where all problems go to the police, even right. if they should not. It, it, they have no business like drugs. No business going to the police. Homelessness. No business going to the police. Well, collecting you know, like, money from parking meters. Yeah. You know, why do we have to have a, a trained armed law enforcement officer to collect money from parking meters? But it's because the police wanted another another job for them to do. Yep. You're putting us. It would be putting the citizens at risk if we if meter maids weren't armed to the teeth. You know. Right. And <laughs> not not to mention uh, uh, construction flaggers. You know, oh yeah, well that's the big job, one, right? Has I mean, to have a Ma cop there on overtime. In, in Massachusetts, though, that is ex pretty much exclusive to here. I think there's one other state that that has cops do it, but everywhere else, it's flag waivers. Yeah, and they look, they come into Massachusetts like, why are there armed police officers at construction sites and working? You know, where you know, just flagging people along through traffic and looking at their phone, always looking at their phones. Right and getting paid, you know, 80, $100 an hour to do that. Uh, we tried to have flag waivers here. Did you hear that story, Rick? When, when oh, we yeah, well, I, I reported on a bunch of that over the years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where they, they chase, they literally chase them off. The police chase flag waivers off of construction sites. It's- So it, uh, just just to shift gears a little bit, um, Rick, were you, were, have you been, uh, or were you in, at some point in contact with the, the Stamps family? Um, yes, to, to bring this up to date a little bit, um, <clears throat> the, the, the stamps thing happened in 2011. That's when the, the, the killing occurred. Uh, 2020, around the time of Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd's deaths, um, I wrote a piece about it for the, uh, for the paper and said, by the way, here's this other case, a guy named Yuri Stamps, and I told the story again. And um, I got a call shortly thereafter from people who were friends of the Stamps family. And they said, you know, we, we've decided we wanna start making some noise about this. 
So mm -hmm. I worked with them for six months or so, and a bunch of people got together from Framingham and Cambridge and a lot of other places. And we put together some, uh, some demonstrations, some, some activity, did some organizing around it. We had a, uh, a, a march in, uh, in Cambridge, which is where Yuri was, was from and where he grew up. And we had a rally in Framingham and you know, we, we, we made that effort to, uh, to, to bring it back into public consciousness. Because mm -hmm. um, one, one of the things that drives me um, crazy uh, and, I, and I don't know the reason for this, but, but I, I see it uh, in action on a daily basis. And you mentioned George Floyd and we've talked about Breonna Taylor, uh, but the way that a life can be erased and the public doesn't ever really think about it because we've criminalized the act of being killed by the police. So if you're killed by the police, the first thing the public assumes is that you were, had committed a crime. And it took the last several years for people to realize that that's not true. Uh, there was the shooting in South Carolina where the person was running away from the officer and the officer shot him in the back and then threw his taser at his feet. It took that type of case for people to realize that you, you, know, you, you didn't deserve to be killed. But even so, even when there's accidental shootings, we sort of never talk about the victim. And- I think uh, and, that know, was one of the, the, the first things we wanted to do. Yeah, I, I think the goal, especially of the, the family members and their their friends and people who knew him, were to say what they wanted to say his name. They wanted to lift him up and say, hey, guess what? This is not just a victim. This is not just another person killed by police. This is a man and this is what he was all about. And this is, you know, he, he was there at every football game to 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 cheer on his his uh, his grandchildren. You know, and that he did. He organized sports in Cambridge, and he did this, and he did that, and 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 what a genuinely nice, terrific person he was. So at the events we had, there was a lot of talk about just who was Yuri Stamps, yeah. and and why are we making a big deal out of it? So it, that that part I think was the most successful part of our organizing effort. And um, I think that's important because I think that that's the needle will never be moved, in my opinion. Um, as long as we don't find a way to give vo sort of voice to the victims. And, and I remember that awful feeling when I started reading reports about did George Floyd have drugs in his blood system? As if that would justify, right, what was done to him and erase him as a person. Um, the police Brianna will Taylor, do that in every single case. If you yes. have an interaction with the police and um, they're, they're, they're ready to blame it on the victim every time. Right. And they'll get they'll get court orders to draw your blood if they have to find some narrative to justify the shooting. You know, um, so I, 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 I guess I applaud and appreciate your efforts and um, and, uh, and my uh, sympathy goes out to the family. Um, and and because, it, again, it's not uh, the life doesn't get erased. Right. This was a person who had children and grandchildren. And I think the public is used to just sort of turning on a dime and saying, well, it shouldn't have been there, you know. The one you read on online, the comments, I'm sure you had comments to your articles. People say, well, don't, you know, don't do the crime if you can't get stand getting shot. You know, there's always that type of, of knee-jerk reaction, which uh, is um, very depressing. It's it's always the right thing to do to humanize these stories yeah. to 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 make sure that we're we're talking about a real person. And I I I one part of my experience with this whole business was that uh, 
even even though my newspaper covered this extensively for at least the six first six months of, of 2011, when I uh, started writing about it a decade later, people that were in Framingham at the time and and should have known about it said, "Oh, I never heard about that." You know, it just <laughs> washed right yeah. past people, and they said, "I can't believe that happened in my town. Where was yeah. I? Why didn't I hear about it?" Well. Local newspapers aren't what they used to be, and they aren't read like they used to be. So, uh, so that that was sobering to me as a local newspaper guy that we wrote about it, and it just was like right. a, a rock thrown into a pond, you know. Um, but when we did start making noise about it, it it, it felt like the right thing to do. Now, that right. was not our only goal. We also wanted some. We wanted justice. We also wanted the the killer of Yuri Stamps to be punished and to lose his job and to be prosecuted. None of that happened. Right. We wanted right. a new investigation. They promised one, but it hasn't gone anywhere as near as I can tell. So, right. and we wanted new policies so that it wouldn't happen again. And uh, we didn't have much luck on that front either. Right. And so we're still at risk. Um, Marion Ryan has said that she was working with the FBI, right? Is that where it's at now? We don't know the outcome of that or? Um, she said, yeah, that she was referring it to, to the FBI. That would have been in um, August of 2020. Um, two years later, I haven't heard anything. Right. Uh, so I... I uh, and, and it's been more than 10 years. I mean, this isn't like... Yeah. You know, right. this seems a little bit, a wee bit late in the game to talk about referrals to the FBI that when something happened more than a decade ago. I mean, that's just, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm glad to see that, that you've kept, helped keep this case alive. Well, and, and still it's in the hands of the Middlesex District Attorney, the same department that investigated it in 2011 and right. investigated very poorly, didn't put people under oath. Um, you know, there were a lot of, of, of shortcuts in that investigation. And I might add the district attorney at the time, Jerry Leone, uh, is no longer there. But Marion Ryan, who is now district attorney investigating it again, supposedly, um, was a top official in, the, in that department. Uh, she may have been the one investigating the Uri Stamps killing the first time around, and it's still in her hands to investigate it again. So we just don't have high expectations. Right of getting anything resolved there. And I, I actually, I'm not sure why I did this, but I recall many, many years ago reading a transcript of what Duncan gave as his explanation for how mm -hmm. he ha uh, had occasion to pull the trigger. And it had something to do with he was losing his balance. He was, he was trying to change position or do something. Something, with, uh, something. Get the suspect's hands behind his back. Yeah, it, it uh, sounded it wasn't very coherent what he yeah. said. Uh, moreover, and this came up through the civil suit, uh, the district attorney never bothered to to uh, determine the trajectories of the bullets, uh, which is such a basic <laughs> crime investigative tool. Uh, but right. there were lots of things that they didn't. So they they never actually bothered to find out whether his his story held up and matched the physical evidence. Oh, right. well, he and, said it, so you got to believe it, right? I mean, he just, well, why, why look in case he was lying to see uh, what the actual physical evidence says when you can just believe everything this guy says? Well, it, it, the, the fascinating thing in these police shootings is that the 
um, you know, what's good for the goose is not good for the gander. Meaning if there's a shooting, if, if I went outside my front yard and shot a gun, uh, instantaneously police cars with their lights blaring will be nearby. And then there'll be people with little art bins walking around picking up every little scrap of paper or anything. They'll be taking, uh, uh, lifting footprints out of the mud. Um, there'll be a guy looking around for tire marks, right? They, when, when mm -hmm. there's a shooting, they cordon off the area and they make a big deal about it, which I think they should. But when the police discharge their weapons, it's like they're not even sure that a crime was committed. They don't approach it like a crime was committed. They just yeah. act like, well, you know, I had a tough day at the job. How was your day at work? Right. Uh, you know, Especially that's how they if it's somebody it. you work with regularly or if, if it's a buddy of yours. Right. right. That's why in in many if not most states if an officer is involved in a in in a, a fatal act a fatal shooting um somebody from outside that county either somebody from the state police or somebody from another county is is in charge of investigating that not somebody from your local da's office that may know all of everybody on that department right they may have been the state police assigned their... to the middlesex da's office work together every day absolutely and, and they and get unlike, assigned to be witnesses in trials that they give and you know like there's there's all kinds of um uh reasons for them to not uh investigate properly because they have those relationships and oh he's a good guy he would never x y you know like and, you can't and, and do that most departments have uh, certain rules as to when you can question the officer and there's usually a big time lag between when the thing happens and whereas again if i went out in my front yard and shot a gun I would be detained and being and questioned right away, um, you know, and um, and, and you wouldn't have your union rep sitting next to you right. when you're questioned, which is what happened in this case, and typically happens in the case of police shootings. Right. Absolutely. And very often we have that the, audio. Very often, the officer is the last person questioned, and whether or not he's supposed to know uh, what the other witnesses' statements were, he probably has a pretty good idea of what the other witnesses' statements were. So there's a sort of a impossibility of ever actually getting to the truth um, when a shooting like this happens, because it's always sort of done in an after the fact way to protect uh, uh, police departments. And the, the, the answer, and if, if you called up, uh, if you called up the DA's office tomorrow and, uh, and asked them a question about the Uri Stamps case, you will be told we can't talk about that because it's under active investigation. Yeah. So, so, so 11 it's years never later, not. you know, they, they have been refusing to answer questions for 11 years because there's an active investigation. Right. And that's, and that's what they do um, with basically every case like that. They just don't want to talk about even the uh, Kevin Burnham. If you remember him from Springfield, the evidence officer that stole um, money and drugs from the evidence room always an active investigation and then it's oh you know we can't uh, get public records for that because it's in a box and it's off site somewhere like right. the, it is so transparent what they do but they just they get away with it because there's no repercussions so um do we want to talk uh so that's so that's the yuri stamps case we'll talk more in another episode on that we have someone else coming in um to to discuss that as well in in greater detail but there was also you wrote an article on mark uh tinsley and what happened to him at a, a quote routine traffic stop around the same time right this was in 2012 correct yes that's right so what, uh, could you could you take us through that case? 
Yeah, this was a case that, uh, let's see, Mark Tinsley was uh, driving through Framingham. Uh, he was going over 40 in a 25 mile per hour zone. It was night, he was pulled over for speeding. Um, they asked him, the officers uh, asked him to get out of his car. Um, he asked them why, he showed some, made some, some resistance allegedly. Um, and uh, things escalated. Uh, more cops arrived. Uh, they again ordered him out of the car. He again uh, wanted to know why. Um, they eventually um, physically removed him from the car and beat the crap out of him. Right. Uh, sent him to the hospital. Um, and then they charged him with... Um, Let's see, resisting to arrest, resisting arrest. Uh, I'm looking quickly. They cut his seat belt. Uh, they charged him with several, several charges, um, tried and convicted of disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, assault and battery, and carrying a dangerous weapon, meaning he had a knife in his pocket. Um, all for speeding. All for speeding. Now, I, as I noted at the time, we probably wouldn't have heard about this. This is, would appear as just a simple, um, somebody pulled over and, and arrested for disturbing the peace. It probably wouldn't have made it into the police blotter in the local paper. If it did, it would have been a small item. Um, but in this case, Mark Tinsley uh, didn't just roll over and take it. He filed a, a lawsuit uh, against the, the Framingham Police Department and its officers that eventually went all the way to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. And uh, this was last uh, September 2020, the SJC issued a ruling and in the course of it, they, they told the whole story and they included testimony from Mr. Tinsley about how badly he was kicked and brutalized and, and uh, repeatedly uh, he was cuffed. He was, he was somebody, you know, an officer put his, put his foot on his face and ground it into the dirt. Uh, they called him the N-word. Um, he is an African-American. Um, and you know, basically they beat the crap out of him and then arrested him and he sued them. <laughs> And the question in the suit became one related to qualified immunity. Could he sue or not? They, they resisted saying they, they had qualified immunity. Um, the SJC ruled in this in a, in a similar case, and it was an interesting ruling. One of the, one of the things that the SJC concluded was that, um, was that if that you couldn't use evidence of uh, trying to evade police. If a police tries to stop someone, especially an African-American or a minority, um, and that person tries to run away, that may be a reasonable response. That does not mean that person is guilty. That may mean that person is reasonably assuming that he wouldn't be treated fairly by the officers. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That is crazy. That Think about that. Yeah. <laughs> And, and what was the other one? What, what the, the, the other point they made was that, uh, yes, indeed, he did have the right to sue those officers for everything they did after they pulled him out of his car. Wow. 
So it's been remanded back to the courts to have that part be adjudicated. But that's a little a little crack in in qualified immunity. Right. And Ilias, could you d just define qual qualified immunity as you understand it? I mean, I, I think we get the picture, but could well, you just kind of? I'm going to give a. I don't want to give away um, all of the points that I think we'll cover in depth uh, about qualified immunity because I think if you to learn the history of it is to sort of understand what it actually is. Um, but it is a judge-made. Uh, some legal scholars may disagree with me, but I'm going to say because I've read the Constitution a couple times. And I don't see qualified immunity there. So I'm going to say it's, a, and I don't see a federal statute. So it's a judge made exception to our civil rights. Um, and what it says is that it, you can't sue a, uh, 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 an officer in this case, it's, it's not limited to police officers, but it, it's most routinely applied to police officers. You can't sue a police officer for uh, doing uh, something which, you know, in good faith, he could have reasonably believed was okay. That's the simplest way to say it. And it, it, the doctrine itself is, um, is, is chaotic. And you have even people on both ends of the political spectrum, um, from Clarence Thomas to sort of more liberal judges, I think actually agreeing that we should throw out the case law and start again, uh, not necessarily for the same reason. Uh, but the idea that, uh, uh, as it's sometimes framed, that unless there's a case that says you can't, for example, raid a house at midnight and point a long gun at someone's head with, with your finger inside the trigger, unless there's a decision that says you can't do that, it would have been okay for you to think that you could have done that. Now, fortunately, uh, the Duncan didn't get, uh, to my understanding, qualified immunity in the Stamps case. Um, but these have, as somebody who's litigated uh, qualified immunity, uh, uh, I guess, both successfully and unsuccessfully, I would say I can't predict when it's going to be applied and when it's not going to be applied. I think it's totally up to the judge and the facts of the case. Um, but it is it is a, an effort to try to block. At the end of the day, it's an effort to block a jury from deciding whether a police officer was re reasonable or not. It takes the issue away. We're not saying police officers don't get their day in court, but qualified immunity says that the, the family of the victim does not get their day in court. Right. It's a, it's a total end run around uh, any kind of judicial accountability. Right. Wow. And civil rights, like you're saying. Like, I mean, they, so they basically, I mean, it's, it's almost a license to kill. It's almost a license to, you know, rob or, or do whatever if in the name of, you know, uh, protecting the common good. And, that is incredibly dicey and uh you know it puts a lot of trust into uh people that have proven time and again that they cannot be trusted and no one for not to just blame them no one who you give absolute power to can be trusted you, you just can't and when you do stuff like this it really almost i'm sure justifies in their mind their actions because they have the ability to use this kind of judgment to do whatever they want to people that they feel are acting suspicious. And can I add one more layer to it? So again, we'll cover this in more uh, uh, depth and hopefully not boring depth, but uh, the, the Supreme Court did two, uh, pulled two rabbits out of a hat to create qualified immunity. One was this idea that all along there's been this footnote to the constitution that police officers get qualified immunity that no one knew about. 
Then the second rabbit that was pulled out of a hat was that we're not going to look at the actual officer who did it and say, you know, what were you doing? We're going to pretend that we know that we're watching a movie with uh, subtitles and we're going to just judge the officer by his actions and say whether those were objectively reasonable. So the fact that the officer may or may not have used the N-word before somehow is irrelevant. The question is, would a regular reasonable police officer have repeatedly punched someone in the face and used knee strikes for no reason? Um, not this officer who was using the N-word at the time. And that creates a real artificial look at whether this officer deserves to be held liable or not. I would love to get in a bar fight and then have someone judge me, my actions, not by what I said, but just by, well, well, you know, could that have been a reasonable decision to try to punch back to protect yourself? Well, of course, right? So, so when you ask the question that way, you've almost guaranteed the outcome. And I think while, while qualified immunity is a specific legal term um, that it's a, is specifically applied or, or not applied depending on the case, that same logic runs through all the other, uh, all the other uh, actions that are taken by, uh, by law enforcement. In other words, <clears throat> Paul Duncan, who killed Yuri Stamps, uh, when they did the, when the DA's office did their investigation of him, qualified immunity might not necessarily have come up, but the same kind of, would, could it be, can we interpret the, the bias toward an accident, the bias toward letting an officer uh, get away with it because who knows what can happen in a case like that it is, is part of uh, sort of the penumbrance of, uh, of the qualified immunity thinking mm -hmm. is that, you know, the, the whole business of, well, was the officer afraid for his life? Did he have a reason to be afraid for his life, which is an excuse for, for tons of police shootings. Right. Um, and, and yet doesn't always really, doesn't, doesn't apply. And it tilts the, uh, tilts the, the, the game board a little bit judicially. Going back to Tinsley, there's a couple of, I think, commonalities with Tinsley and Stamps. Uh, one, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my uh, perspective from reading articles. Uh, Tinsley was African-American, but the officers involved were white. Uh, that's the same configuration for Stamps, is that correct? Meaning Stamps uh, yes. uh, was African-American, is African-American, uh, and the officers were predominantly white. Um, so you mentioned bias. Well, there's another huge bias uh, that is sort of, um, uh, I think pe uh, people sort of pretend that's not a, a major problem when you have to make split uh, second decisions about whether someone is a threat or not. And there's pretty good empirical data to show that a lot of white people feel a threat when they see a black person, even if there's absolutely no threat. So um, that's a huge uh, a problem that I don't think anyone is really uh, focused on addressing. I've, you know, I've heard lots of institutional solutions, but none of them deal with the issue of how to deal with inherent racial bias. There are programs that deal with that. There's training that, uh, that some law enforcement uh, departments have, have gone through an implicit bias uh, training. I don't know if it works or not, to tell you the truth. It, it may be something that, that sounds good to the uh, management consultants that are that are you know coming up with, that are that are trying to sell something to the uh, to the officials. Uh, I I know uh, officers of the Massachusetts Attorney General's office 
uh, Laura Healy once told me that they were going through a systematic process of getting these people trained in, in implicit bias recognition. Um, maybe, you know, it's not a bad idea. I just don't know whether it works. The, the other commonality is that, uh, am I correct, that Tinsley was pulled over by uh, members of the Framingham Narcotics uh, uh, Unit. Uh, I recognized at least one, and I think two of the names as narcotics officers, but I don't know if that's um, some uh, that's, aspect of the case that you've looked at. Um, I have not looked at that. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether being on the narcotics unit means you, you don't pull anybody over for speeding. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get to it. They have uh, other, they have other responsibilities. They just get extra. We'll, we'll, in their, we'll in get their it tank. to it. Uh, we'll get to it next week, uh, next episode rather, but uh, there is such a thing as uh, a pretextual stop, uh, which is that you pull somebody over for some innocuous reason. And then you happen to look inside the car or smell something. And then you, you get broader latitude, but we'll, we'll, I don't want to speculate in the Tinsley case, but I, um, but I, but I think it, it, it does tie back uh, in some way to the to the stamps case because again it's it's you know if, if they were uh, if this was just a traffic stop I don't know if we'd need to have that kind of reaction so I suspect there was something else that officers were trying to um, uh, find out and and I think that ties back to the war on drugs as well. The other thing that I would would look at too is that um, you know almost everybody has had has been pulled over by the police for one thing or another i've been pulled over more times than i can count um a hundred percent of the time just about when the officer sees how old and white i am he treats me with great courtesy and respect they don't they don't pull me out of my car and beat me they don't insult me they say sir you know yes. um and that's not the case i hate to break it to a lot of white folks out there that's not always the case with African-Americans, especially African-American men. And I have had black friends tell me of cases where they were pulled over for, you know, a broken taillight and they've got a gun in their, at their face. An officer is drawn on, and, and, you know, that, that is a traumatic experience. That's scary as hell. A uh, guy told me that he, he, he was pulled over on uh, driving home at night after an event. He had a nine-year-old son his nine-year-old son in the back seat asleep. And next thing he knew, he had guns pointing at his head from two sides of the car. And he kept thinking, what if my son wakes up and we say the wrong thing? You know, we could right. be dead. And that's a part of uh, everyday experience for minorities in this country that more people should know about. And you should know about, you know, when for every Yuri Stamps that's actually killed, there are hundreds of innocent people that are just beaten or sent to the hospital yeah, or threatened or scared or just yeah. traumatized, you know, and yeah. that is, you know, that's a, that's a, a real damage when you, when you uh, scare somebody like that. You can get PTSD from that for sure. I mean, it's, it's traumatic. And then the next time you get pulled over, is this going to happen again? But the yeah. way to do, I mean, the way to solve that is to send these guys to a one-off class, you know that that they're randomly contract out that's the only way to solve it right and then you get a certificate and then it's all done like these racist stops where people <laughs> are being dragged out the only way to do it is to go oh you went to a class oh okay all right you're no longer racist you must not be prejudiced prejudice. yeah yeah it's, it's over so thank god they, they came up with that genius idea um this is where this part of the show is where i like to say or I, i'm going to say 
how many people are killed by police officers in England every year? Just throwing it out there. Uh, Zero. Zero. Zero to one. And same with Germany. And same with a, a lot of other countries. This is my, my biggest problem with the United States is we act like we live inside of a vacuum in this world where like the United States is special and different and we could never ever be like these other countries or we don't even know how other countries operate. That's the, that's the main problem. Mm-hmm. And then to know that no one gets killed by the police in these countries and that thousands get killed by the, killed and beaten by the police in this country and to not see that in like a light bulb doesn't go on and say, hey, what the heck is going on in our country? Why are so many people being murdered by the police where other countries can somehow have their, their police not murder a single citizen? Every, like, every cop in the country, no one gets killed. So like, to me, something's going on in our country. And um, what that is, I don't, I mean, we, we won't have enough time to talk about that here, but I think we're, we're touching on some of those points with qualified immunity and police unions and enabling police officers to behave this way. I think that's part of it. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I think, I think the problem is that I, I think you have to have a population, you have to have general agreement that, uh, that it's a problem when police kill innocent people. And I don't think we have consensus like that in the country. And that's, that's really what the George Floyd protests, the largest protests in American history um, was all about. It was about saying, hey, this is a problem and let's do something about it. Whereas I think a large, for, for most of the country's history and for most of the country's people, uh, they don't want to talk about because they don't think it's a problem in the first place. Right. Well, we, we, you know, not to get too much into the history, but, but in this country, Thanks to uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who had a, a, a actually a film budget, um, we popularized the idea of shooting uh, uh, gangsters and bank robbers um, in in gun battles, and uh, and and that was so normalized that in when they made E.T., um, people may not remember this, and they've actually changed the movie, I believe. Uh, but when when the kids are uh, right at that last scene where they're trying to get away from the police, the police have their guns drawn and at them. The police are pointing their guns at kids on bicycles in the original movie uh, and made by Steven Spielberg, who seems like a reasonable person. And that was considered normal. They've now changed it. So now the police are holding radios. Um, I think that we've so normalized the idea that the police can draw their guns and on very scant uh, grounds uh, uh, pull the trigger that it's, it's gonna be very hard to sort of culturally walk that back. And we can put it in training and we can do all kinds of things, say no midnight, no knock warrants, whatever. Um, but all we're doing is sort of solving one problem, but leaving all the others. And that's the way I, I, I look at it. It's gonna take a cultural shift. Yeah. And I mean, like, like Rick was saying, we have to have like, there, there has to be a disconnect at some point, but we, with like always just agreeing with everything the police say. I don't think you said it exactly like that, Rick, but like to me, like you, you get you in this country, you are not guilty when you're, you know, found guilty in a court of law. You are guilty when you are accused of a crime or when you talk to the police. If the police want to talk to you, what did you do? You're guilty. What did you do? Like it, that's how we are. 
and we give so much credence to the police and and like so much leeway that if they take full advantage of it they do and this is what we see like we we have a very very large blind spot because they have an extremely dangerous job it, it is a it's a they deal with a lot of horrors that the general public does not want to deal with and we thank them for it which you know i understand that and that is true to an extent but you can't like it's like having a kid and raising your kid you love your kid but if they're a fuck up you have to like at some point call them out for being a fuck up and you know like and trying to work towards not being a fuck up anymore and the police in this country in my opinion are fuck ups but we don't all agree on like there's some parents that will never see their kids as being a fuck up you know i mean that's that's my analogy but um it, i think it holds true because we just we have a huge as a society a huge blind spot for police and it also doesn't help in massachusetts specifically that um, I, I think we had a guest on like Lois O'Hearns uh, last time that said uh, close to 50% of our lawmakers are former uh, law enforcement. That doesn't help. And, um, you know, we have a lot in, in the police union, the money that we give the, the police who, uh, union who then, you know, turns that into lobbying who, you know, and working with the newspapers, they're, they're buddy buddy with like newspapers and and uh, I mean, you see on Channel Four that former Boston um, police officer there, or the the head of the Boston police, was like a contributor on Channel Four. Did you see that guy? Yeah. There's a guy on Channel Four that was a former head of Boston police, and he like at one moment he's like being interviewed by Channel Four in his full uniform, and then he's in studio in a suit, you know, talk, giving an opinion on like what just happened. It's like, uh, it, there's no line, you know. We we just kind of uh take what they say i mean that's my long diatribe on it but it just like we we have to be more objective with the police and we can't always just take what they say at face value i think i can add one more diatribe of my own uh, this problem is is made much more difficult by the political structure um, we will talk um and we saw it in the last campaign we'll see it in the next campaign making making crime and police policies a federal issue in federal campaigns for the Senate or for the presidency. But the feds don't do much, don't control much of the local police. We right. can make it an issue at the state level and there were some sort of half-baked, diluted uh, reforms that were passed in the wake of, of George Floyd in Massachusetts, in, including a uh, restriction, a small restriction on the use of no-knock warrants. You can't use a no-knock warrant when there are children, when they believe there are children or elderly people in the house. I think of that as the Uri Stamps exception for uh, no-knock warrants, but that's very, uh, very, very weak rule, I think. Um, but the problem, the larger problem is that police departments are supervised at the local level. So you're you're never no president is going to change the culture in the Framingham Police Department, and that's what you have to do to make it so that everybody is treated treated fairly and equitably when they're pulled over and on a traffic stop. Uh, you can only do that locally, and people don't vote in lo local elections. Uh, there's a reason why the the mayor in Framingham um, has not fired the uh, has not fired the the killer of Uri Stamps. Um, 
yes, it's the union and a lot of other things, but it's also because the support of the police department will determine whether you get reelected. And if you don't get involved at the local level to, to actually make changes uh, in, in police policies, it's just not gonna happen. And the accountability uh, problem, um, you, you know, really rears its head here because, uh, you know, uh, Rick, you said, I think that you were a journalist for, I don't know, 30 years yeah, um, and to, at one or two organizations. And that tells me that you probably made deadlines, you know, didn't get facts wrong on a regular basis and, you know, did a good job. And that's how you keep your job everywhere else uh, in, in this country. Um, you know, lawyers, doctors, uh, are, uh, so many people, airline pilots are held accountable for their actions, understanding the consequences that can result. And yet police uh, who can hold, you know, make life or death decisions for not only themselves, but others and, and, and hold our lives in their hands aren't really held by the same system of accountability. And, and we wonder why we get this, the same outcome uh, when we don't uh, uh, hold uh, them to, uh, to, to standards that, that can, can dictate whether someone's fired or whether someone you know, has to change their behavior. I mean, medicine and, and law and accounting and go industry by industry, there's, there's, there's forced accountability. And the standards should be higher, not lower. Absolutely. For, uh, for, for people that are, that are entrusted with the, the power of the state. Given what everything, I mean, you know, like you said, the power of the state, they hold our lives in their hands. They could come and kill us and make any kind of justification up they want to and, um, and you know, not get held accountable for it. And, you, and we see that with Yuri Stamps. We see that all the time. And I'm sure there's, a, there's sadly a lot more Yuri Stamps out there that, you know, didn't have dogged people like yourself or others uh, advocating for their story to be told. So thank you for that. And uh, it's really heartening that you, uh, your work that you've done to try to uh, get some accountability for his murder. Thank you for keeping the story alive as well. Yeah, well, we, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to, um, we want to make sure that people, whatever kind of platform that we have that, you know, this story uh, gets some more legs until there is justice uh, for this man who was murdered for no reason. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Rick, thank you for being a guest today. And um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you, Rick. Thanks.